Hey, good, uh, good afternoon, everyone. This is Dan Jenkins. Uh, I'm with the Steel Camel. I'm down here in Tampa, Florida today. It's uh, middle October, and it's hot and humid. And today, we're going to talk about how to control this humidity in enclosed spaces. You know, primarily about electrical junction box, motors, electrical panels, printed circuit boards, printed wire boards, that's the type of stuff. But we want to preserve your parts and so they're not damaged. So that's what we're going to talk about. Okay. And to begin, we have to know that water is everywhere. We are made of water. Our food has water. Our air has water. Guess what? Our parts have water in it too. So there's some really good parts about water. They make the world go around, but there's some really bad parts about water, and we're going to explore those today. A little bit about me. Uh, I uh, was involved in accident prevention and accident investigation for Shell Oil, and I primarily focused on heavy equipment and why things break and why things snap and why things fall apart and why people hurt themselves or unfortunately get killed. And during that time, I got to work with some uh, reliability engineers who were focused on making sure these things didn't happen and how to make their operation work more smoothly. So I do have a little experience in that, and I'm going to try and relay that to you today, particularly about moisture in electronic parts. Okay. And as we talk about moisture on electronic parts, uh, these things, again, cause accidents, cause part failure, cause disruption in your productivity. And one of the things I'd like to show you real quick is microbial influence corrosion, which is a, a kind of gaining steam in the industry as we have more alternative um, products, if you will. For example, ethanol and gasoline, uh, corn packaging, uh, popcorn, all kinds of organics out there that are more susceptible to micro influence corrosion. If anybody knows what kind of uh, part that is, please put it in the comments section. Okay, so to set the stage, we're going to talk a little bit about the similarities between cranes and circuit boards and electrical, electrical parts. On the left is a big crane, on the right is a very small circuit board. But what makes them so similar? First, they are put together. They are assembled. A crane is put together, and so is a board. So we're assembling hardware. Secondly, they both transfer loads. So a board transfers current, but a crane transports parts or mass. Okay, very similar. They both use fasteners. A lot of fasteners used on a crane. A lot of fasteners used on printed circuit boards. And by the way, I ran into a guy who sells torque wrenches for cranes and torque wrenches for print circuit boards. Same wrench, just scaled a lot farther down. So there's a lot of similarities on how they're attached and assembled. Also, they're both exposed to harsh environments. I'm in Florida. I'm on a saltwater. Across the bay from us is a power plant, coal-fired plant, and there's actually a, um, a gypsum board plant that gives off harsh environments. Uh, cranes, as you know, have a lot of steel and they're welded. Two metal parts are welded together. In the circuit board industry, they just call it soldering. Very similar, just a much smaller in scale. What else? Cranes 
are subject to vibration. A lot of excavators and bulldozers and aerialists are all subject to vibration. Well, so is the motors in your plants. So is the uh, server in your plant, the computer boards, they vibrate. They overload. They definitely are both susceptible to heat damage. So if you have heat in your server, because it's getting a lot of current, well, guess what? A crane gets hot if it's being worked a lot. The parts expand and contract, particularly if they're used all day and then cool down. They're used very heavily and cool down, they contract. And of course, as we talked about, they're both subject to corrosion and unfortunately both can fail. Let's take a deeper look. Okay, let's talk about overload for a second. That was a picture from my company at a Navy base, by the way. And cranes get overloaded quite often. People don't read the directions, don't read the load chart, and they're susceptible to overloading, falling over, breaking. Okay. Printed circuit boards get overloaded. Too much current, too much energy is running through them. Next, cranes, you might have the best crane in the world, but if the load is rigged improperly, it could cause the crane to fail and the part to fail. Same with electronic boards and electrical junction boxes. These electricians could assemble them wrong, rig them wrong, and attach wires in the wrong place. And it's now not assembled correctly, and it can fail. Cranes have weak spots. They get fatigued if they get used over and over in the same spot. I happen to not only be on the crane prevention side, later in my career, I was on the crane repair side, and I worked for a company that repaired crane booms just like that. And they usually had a weak spot from fatigue or stressed out, and they failed. Same with a board. Electronic parts get weak, particularly if there's corrosion involved, and they can be stressed, and they can crack and fail. So keep an eye on for metal parts that get used over and over in the same routine. And guess what? They'll get fatigue and weak spots. Of course, there's corrosion. Corrosion on electrical panel. Look at the product on the left, top left. That is an electrical panel. Guess what? Water, moisture droplets were living in there, starting the electrical corrosion process. Bad, very bad, particularly if you're operating a crane. Okay, so it's also bad if you're in your plant. You could be operating the building or operating machinery or operating conveyor belts with electrical panels. We need to open them up and look in there and see if moisture has caused corrosion. Also, for those of you going out inspecting your plants or your factories or your computer assembly places, you gotta look at the fasteners. You gotta look at the fasteners. They are susceptible to corrosion and fail, and they fail quite often, okay? Why? Because they get corrosion on them, they get moisture, they expand and contract, and once that oxidation process starts, it makes the fasteners very difficult to get out, and your part might not be working as it's supposed to. So look for those types of things. Also, cranes, unfortunately, and aerial lifts, unfortunately, are subject to sparking, particularly when they hit wires or they hit metal buildings, okay? They cause a fire. Well, same for your parts on your electrical parts. They are susceptible to a spark or a fire. 
So you have to look inside and see if there's any moisture, any corrosion, anything that's getting hot, too hot that could spark a fire or cause a short. So moisture causes some of those problems. Okay, let's talk a little bit about harsh environments. And if anybody has in the chat room wants to talk about harsh environments, please chime in. But I started in the offshore oil rig business, perhaps one of the most aggressive corrosion situations known to man. I think the gas station business is actually surpassing it, but they're very harsh environments. Why? We have humidity, we have salt air, we got lots of machinery that gets hot and cold, and guess what? We have corrosion. So look for harsh environments, tire plants, phosphate plants, pulp and paper mills, fertilizer plants, orange juice factories. Anybody you guys are doing perfume or uh, vitamins, right? You're giving off acid. That acid mixes with the moisture, lands on your part, causes corrosion. So look for the elements that you're working in. All righty. So let's talk about moisture. What is it and why is it so destructive? Okay. Well, the moisture, again, it's everywhere. It's in our atmosphere. It's in our shower. It's in our iced tea. It's in our stomach. It's in our food. So moisture is everywhere. But when it mixes with a little acid, it begins to destroy and eat surfaces. When that happens, we get little pits and holes. We can get a leak. We get weakness. Okay. And if you have your parts expanding and contracting, when it's hot and cold, guess what? Further accelerates the corrosion, further uh, uh, accelerates the weakness of the metal parts. Also, moisture is part of microbial corrosion, which we talked about earlier. We got corns, we got starches, we got proteins. We have all these things in the air, which are organic. They mix with the moisture, and it creates what we call acidification. And that is particularly bad when you have acidification and lots of changes in temperature. A lot of people think they should park their planes in Phoenix because it's dry. Great. Unfortunately, you got bigger temperature changes in Phoenix. So they still have humidity and they still have corrosion problems. Okay, let's also talk about this picture right here and why this plane on the left is such a humidity magnet, in particular in the cockpit. This is taken in the Persian Gulf, desert storm, and the tarmac is 100 degrees, okay? The plane is 110, sun beating down on it all day. The guy fires up the engine, now the plane is even hotter, okay? Now the pilot gets in, super hot, turns on the air conditioner and pulls on the canopy at the exact same time. What happens when you have hot temperatures up against a cold temperature? In the case of this, you get humidity, and it is actually a humidity magnet. It is humidity central, okay? If you want humidity, have hot surfaces and cold air inside. And as a matter of fact, the humidity was so strong and so much in this picture, there are actually little water droplets, little drops of water beating up on the canopy. And when they would release, they'd actually fall on the electronics and cause damage and big damage. So this is kind of how we got our start. Steel Camel did. We're very familiar with enclosed spaces where it's hot and cold. You got temperature changes and now you have humidity. And what do you do to stop it? What do you do to mitigate it?
All right. Let's talk a little bit about things being destroyed and things being eaten. Okay. Um, so we got to look again for these humidity magnets, which are enclosed spaces or places on a crane or a piece of heavy equipment or electrical box where moisture develops and it sits on the metal for quite some time and the process starts. So keep an eye out for where water sits. Let's uh, basically review some principles. Uh, so metals negative, moisture's positive. Uh, they're looking for each other. They're constantly looking for each other. And when they start to release some of their properties, we get some oxides and we get some rust. And most people, if you go into your garage, you'll see some rusty tools there. So that's the basic principles of what's happening. So what do people do to stop corrosion? Well, for you know, almost thousands of years uh, since the Iron Age, people have tried to put a barrier in the middle. So most people are familiar with paint is a common one or grease. And we try and keep the water or the moisture away from the metal. So that's the most common way is people put up a barrier. So let's take a little deeper look. Historically, in the Iron Age, in the Middle Ages, we first had armor for soldiers, so swords and shields and helmets. How did they protect them from rusting? Well, early on, they used whale blubber and they used olive oil and they used animal fat and they did all kinds of things to create a barrier to keep that moisture away. And they still use that today. In many cases, it's very effective. There you go, there's a little history. So we've had these armor and people from all over the world have tried different things to protect it from, from rusting. Okay, let's move on a little bit. What are things, what are some other things that people have done to protect metal? Some people use waxes. Some people use oil. Some people use grease. Some people use lanolin. So lanolin is very popular and, and, and waxes are very popular. Let me turn that off. Okay, waxes are very popular. And so there are some good things that are very successful to protect electronics. There's some more modern ones, uh, conformal coatings. It's kind of like a latex glove. It's basically a, a flexible latex that's skinny and it can keep moisture off, okay? Uh, I happen to work in the film films, which are very, very, very thin oils. They even have what's called ultra thin now for aircraft parts. And some of you guys may be familiar with potting, which is like a very thick resin. And we try and smother the electronics and prevent anything from getting in. So that's called potting. If, if you drive by a gas station today and you look at the sign that's blinking and has a big Sunoco or a shell sign, that thing probably has a potted printed circuit board and a potted electrical panel. And they just try and smothered it with resin. And again, there's many successes of it. Okay, but there's also some other types of barriers. One is called a satisfier. Some of you guys know of anodes that are put on uh, boat, uh, boat motors or outboard motors to try and distract uh, the energy uh, transferring or, or, or try and divert the energy. Those are called satisfiers. That's the kind of the technology we represent that uh, 
the metal is looking for something positive and it finds something else that satisfies its need. So those are called satisfiers. Uh, there's some other words for it, but that's the term we use today. All right. So I'd like to talk to you today about problems with barriers and what inspectors should look for. So as your reliability engineer, whether you get out yourself or you have inspectors around the plant, you need to be looking for telltale signs of what can go wrong. Okay, so what, what should you be looking for to, as an early warning sign? So one thing you wanna look for is, is the paint peeling or is the oil coming off? Whatever you did decide to protect, is it is the barrier adhering? Yes or no? And why isn't it adhering? A lot of times it's surface prep. Nobody in the world likes to do surface prep. And so there's a lot of poor surface prep in the world and it leads to paint peeling. So that's one thing to look for. Other things to look for is trapping moisture where you have a change in temperature, you have condensation building up on your parts and then you put the coating over it. If you look at the bottom right picture, that is a common problem in the auto painting industry. They do all this prep work to get your car ready for paint, yet there's moisture in the airlines, okay? And now they're painting your car with moisture in the airline itself and microscopic moisture on the car surface. And guess what? The paint won't adhere. So that's a problem, big problem is moisture trapping. So look for any bubbles like that. Another thing you wanna look for is a swelling or cracking. Is anything being deformed? Okay, again, I was in the crane accident prevention business and we went around all day long looking for things that were cracking or swelling or expanding. So keep an eye on that. So those are some things you and your team should be looking for, early warning signs. What else? should they be looking for? What else? So let's start over here on the left. On the boards, on the electric boards, look for any pitting or popcorning, kind of like a zit, if you will. It's just an expansion of metal really fast and it pops and it creates a little pit or a little hole or a little bubble or a little zit. And that's a problem when uh, you have moisture landing on your parts. Another thing to look for as an inspector, is there anything that's disconfigured? You started off with a beautiful part and now it's changed its shape. Well, why did it change its shape? So those are things to look for. Next, let's talk about bending and flexing. As we talked about earlier, the cranes and the boards both bend and flex. That's a good part thing. However, it could lead to bad things if it's excessive. So look for cracks and coating, particularly you guys using any waxes, any resins, any conformal coatings, look for cracks. Because if you have a crack, the moisture is microscopic. It gets underneath that crack or through the crack and then it sits on the metal. And now you have a coating covering moisture and the inspector can't see it. And that's a major problem, major. Uh, of course, look for cracks in metals. Okay, particularly in your electrical panels, right? Where there's surges or there's guys working on it and something happens where it, there's a crack or there's a crease. Um, and finally, if you're a reliability engineer and you get a report that something is delaminating, something's not sticking, 
okay, or something is not fusing together and it's coming apart, that's a telltale sign that you got a problem and you got to nip it in the bud. So look for anything, any resin that's not sticking or not adhering or coming apart. So those are some things you should look for. Okay, let's talk now about, well, how do you control moisture? What are some things you can do? Okay, today we're gonna to talk a little bit about deskins. And most people are familiar with them. They're little dried pieces of sand or dried pieces of earth that you would get in your beef jerky or you'd get into your pill bottle. And uh, they're used today, still used today, heavily by the military and the computer industry. Um, and basically it adsorbs a little moisture, okay? But it was used in the, in, by the military in the 40s. Uh, and when they came back from the war in World War II, they noticed that a lot of things had corrosion on them, okay? So in 1966, they enacted the first specification on trying to dry military parts or keep military parts dry on moisture sensitive devices. And it's called MilSpec 3464. If anybody needs a copy of it, happy to send it to you. It's still in use today. It was actually written on a typewriter. Okay. And then that device, those beads, if you will, some people call them beads. Okay. Silica beads is a common name. Um, that um, technology was adopted by the um, computer industry in the 90s. So the Joint Electric Device Engineering Council and the Institute of Printed Circuits. Those are the two major computer board or printed wire board industry associations. And they advocate those today, primarily for shipping and just getting it to the next destination. And today, I'm proud to say that the United States military, JDEC and IPC is actually looking at new technology and new ways to keep boards and electrical panels dry. So that's a good thing. Okay. Let's talk about uh, what does a desk and bag do and how do they work? Okay. So the first one is silica, which again is dried sand. Silica sand is a dried piece of glass. Uh, they heat it up uh, very, very hot. Okay. And uh, it's very rigid. And the moisture in the confined space actually adheres to it and uh, coats the surface. So that's how silica works. Works on a little of vapor pressure differential and a little bit about uh, equilibrium, uh, trying to make the uh, container equal equilibrium. So that's how silica works. And basically, the moisture coats the surface. That's how that works. But there's also another one called polymetric. Uh, most people are familiar with uh, baby diapers. Uh, baby diapers is a, a fascinating, uh, unbelievably great invention. And that works by uh, water being absorbed into, this, into the bag and it gains weight. The problem with baby diapers, they do not uh, pull moisture out of the air. So the baby diaper only works when water hits it. So it wouldn't be effective for you in a enclosed environment with just air. So that's basically how it works. The two principles is adsorb, coats of service, absorb becomes part of the bag. Okay, so again, we have a couple different kinds. We have a silica, which I mentioned, is basically dried sand. We have some other ones that people use, which are clay or diatomaceous earth or fossils. Okay, so it's dried dirt, it's dried clay, it's dried earth, 
okay? But again, the moisture just kind of sticks to it. And then again, there's polymetric. Okay, so if you're a reliability engineer and you start sticking these things in your electrical boxes or your, near your motors or near your computers or near your servers and you wanna keep that moisture down, how do you know when to change it? What is a telltale sign? So with the silicon clay, they often add a cobalt solution and it changes colors from pink to blue or red to orange, something like that. But it's kind of difficult if the bag is opaque. So that's a, that's a challenge. And the polymetric side, um, the inspector would look to see if it swelled, got hard, changed shape. And so those are some ways for your inspector to tell, hey, it's time to change the bag. Fred, do we have any questions out there? Any comments? Anybody like to quick comments or questions while we're going? Uh, no, no questions in the questions tab. And a reminder for folks that do have a question or a comment to go ahead and type it in there. Yeah. Um, nothing at the moment. There's, I mean, there's these different technologies. When you say it, the moisture gets trapped in the bag, you, is it chemically bound to the, yes, chemically the polymetric bound. material? Is that what yes. you mean? It gets it's chemically trapped. Bound. Basically, it's trapped and it becomes so part it, of it, and just like a baby diaper. Oops, so it's like a baby diaper, out, in other words. So it expands in some cases. Yeah, yeah. All right. thing, yeah, I'm not seeing any questions, so go ahead and drive on. Okay, cool. Uh, so, so a lot of plants, particularly the computer chip manufacturers, electronic manufacturers, they have been buying the sand or the clay. And again, they wanna regenerate it. But, and because it's a, an organic product, again, it's basically a piece of silica, uh, it's unlimited. It's not going anywhere. So you could, you could recharge the thing to your heart's content. I mean, 50 years, it's not going anywhere. It's never changing shape. It's never changing matter, okay? So that's one of the benefits of silicon clay. You could recharge the thing over and over and over. With the polymetric, very limited because it's got some polymers in there and they get destroyed over time. Okay, let's talk about regeneration again. So if you use a lot of desk and bags, what do you do? How do you regenerate them? Well, the two that are approved by the military, one is called a clarion, uh, right here on the left. Um, that's the most common bag out there. You could actually recharge it, but you have to put it in the oven for 16 hours a 245F to get your full use out of it. And um, it's like uh, like baking a turkey overnight, by the way. So that's the pros and cons of those bags. Yes, it can be recharged. You can use it indefinitely, but you got to put it in your oven for 16 hours. That creates issues as well. Um, the polymetric, we go about 140 degrees in a few hours, but ours is limited in use. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about what actually happens to humidity in enclosed spaces with and without desiccants. So most of you took a shower today, you turn on that hot water, you get condensation on your mirror. Okay, so what happens in an electrical box or a computer storage box, um, you have this humidity that develops and uh, as it heats up, the top part of the humidity will turn into a gas and it starts rising up due to pressure and it will escape. 
So you leave the door open, your gases will go out the door. But when you put the lid on, it will trap it and it will fall back down and will puddle back up. And that's how you build up humidity in your enclosed spaces because you have a lid on there and it's falling back down. So with desiccants, what happens? What actually physically happens inside the box or inside the jar? So with the silica, it's called naturally occurring. The gases will rise and they will adhere to the surface. So as you can see on the left, they will adhere to the surface of the silica bead. On the right, which is synthetic, it will do so as well, but a little slower as the magnet starts to pull the moisture towards it. So on the surface, at the beginning, they both start to work. Then as we go develop more heat and more pressure, the silica bead continues to absorb moisture and coats the surface. And so the beads will actually be coated and they will adhere, the water will adhere. It's doing its job. Same with the polymetric, except on the polymetric, the moisture is now inside the bag. Big difference, it holds it. As we get more moisture and we keep going on, as your product sits in your warehouse or in this hot machine, the silica actually reaches a saturation point and the moisture will fall back off and fall back into the atmosphere. That's when it's time to change. With the polymetric, it will actually hold and the moisture is not allowed to go back into the atmosphere and so it will dry it for longer periods of time. So those are the, some of the differences. For those of you who have to follow industry standards, you're in the computer chip, you're supplying the military, I'd like to review a couple specs with you. First, if you're a military contractor, there's a spec called MilSpec 3464, which I explained earlier, which uses the adsorbent, which is the silica, still into effect this day. Um, you go on the internet, there's 20 or 30 people that uh, say they meet the spec. There's really only two companies that actually meet the spec, but there's a lot that say they meet the spec. So if you're doing military work, there's MilSpec 3464. If you're shipping computer parts and computer boards and making computer boards or shipping computer boards, there's two big standards out there. One's called JDEC, one's called IPC. And lo and behold, they both adapt the MilSpec 3464, which forces you to use silica. How about that? So that's kind of the specs out there. Uh, there's some specs for pharmaceutical, but I don't know much about those. And if you look to the right, on the right, there's a little thing called a humidity indicator card. That tells the operator, hey, you've got too much humidity in there. You need to change it. And then it says, hey, you really got too much humidity on your beads. You, now you need to bake them, okay? So there is some other indicators out there, which is called a humidity card. And primarily it's used in the computer chip industry in the military, not too many other industries. Does anybody out there uh, use humidity indicator cards? If you wouldn't mind, can you put put post a question there? Any questions on um, change indicators? Anybody have a question? Or anybody use humidity cards out there? While they're finding their keyboards, is, you know, one of the things is that there's a lot of variables, right? Where you are in Florida with way more humidity than where I am in California. I mean, I could probably 
work with the silica bag for quite a while before it changes the, the indicator at all. Just because we, we typically run at 25 to 30 RH, it's not that humid. Uh, where I think your humidity is a bit higher than that most of the time. Correct. So, I mean, it, it's it's really the amount of moisture you're trying to deal with. And are there, are, do these standards deal with the, um, well, how much silica do you need to put into a space uh, or is it? Yes, yes. It, so, the, uh, so JDEC and IPC have, uh, they call them units, by the way. So there's two unit, four unit, six unit, eight unit. And the military lays that out in their specification, okay? So it depends on how much you're shipping, how much you're storing. For example, there's a big uh, electronic component manufacturer, shall rename Nameless, but they have warehouses all over the world that supply the military. And depending on the volume of air or the volume of the box, they will use different units specified in the specifications. So they put bigger okay. bags and more of them based on the volume of the package. Okay, but the silica itself, I mean, it, there's probably some refinement as to how much more moisture it could have adsorbed to it, but it, there's a limit, right? There's just there surface is definitely air. a limit. Now, some some will claim that they have tiny microscopic holes in the beads of glass, but I have mm -hmm. not seen any data on it from a third-party independent source. So leave it at that. Right, right. Okay, well, I'm not seeing any questions. I think you're covering the material pretty well. So that's, okay, thank uh, you. That's a good sign. So feel free to, to fire away any questions. So let's talk about this mil spec. This is the dominant one. Again, this has been adopted. I have a copy of it, anybody needs it. It was written on a typewriter in 1966. And uh, just so you know, the to validate your desiccant beads today, it's you can't do it because the equipment used in 1966 is no longer available and it's, uh, you have to create it yourself. So it's quite complicated. So you have to go through the Department of Defense, which is very time consuming. So most people don't do that. So they just adopt what they got today. Okay, this is comes to an important part for the reliability engineers who have moisture problems in their plant or in their facility, whether it's an electrical board, a data center, um, computers, uh, light bulbs, whatever, how do reliability engineers do their own testing? Because you want to validate it yourself. Because right now uh, we're waiting on the big defense contractors in the military to, to upgrade the, the specifications and the testing. So how does one do it yourself? So the easiest way is to find some parts that you have, find the desiccants here you have, and compare them in a humidity chamber. Uh, you can make your own, or you could do your own, or send it out to a lab. And you want to measure how much weight does the desiccant gain, and how long does it keep adding weight. So that's a good indication of how you conduct a performance test to determine which bag is the best for your facility. So one way is with the humidity chamber, very common. The second way a lot of defense contractors do who are concerned about humidity and storing electrical parts before they get to that test in the humidity chamber, 
they take two mason jars, uh, 16 ounce, 32 ounce, and they take two different humidity uh, deskin bags and they drop them in there with a piece of string. And then they put a half a teaspoon of water in the jars and then they put a heat lamp on it. And they see which bag holds the moisture and reduces the condensation in the jar. That's very common. So people do that with a heat lamp. Another way people test in, uh, desk and bags is they actually put it in the windowsill for a week and they want uh, a, a windowsill that faces the sun where it gets hot during the day and cold at night. Hot in the day, cold at night, just like your warehouse. So a lot of people conduct their own performance tests before they roll out a, a, a rule at their plant. They conduct their own test, again, heat lamp or jar. Pretty simple to do. Finally, a lot of the big sophisticated companies that have operations all over the world, they're very concerned about the parts, like the ones I'm showing you in the middle. They do not want that humidity card to go off and turn colors before it gets to their destination, because then the customer can reject the entire pallet or reject the entire truckload or the entire train load if they have humidity. I just saw something this morning on a cargo ship from Marine where the humidity is building up in these uh, people shipping electric parts. So how can you conduct the test? Guess what? You take your package, you take your part, you wrap them up. I prefer to have a lot more air in it than these vacuum packs and you put it out in your warehouse. You ship it around the world. You subject it to vibration. You subject it to hot and cold. And you try and develop real-world experience and measure for yourself which one protects your parts the best, most economically. So that's another way to conduct a performance test. All right, let's move on. If anybody has any questions, fire away. Uh, so what should you be looking for? You're a reliability engineer. You got these electronics, you got these parts, you got these motors, you got these servers, and you got to keep them up and running. So what are you looking for? How long does each deskant last, right? The United States military spends a fortune changing out deskant bags and heating deskant bags. That's very, very important to them is the length of time that it lasts. That's very, very important to the military. Secondly, how much volume of air can be desiccated? So. Do you really want to shrink wrap all your parts? You really want to vacuum seal all your parts? I'm not so sure about that. So you want to test things and create a bigger bag or a bigger box and test it out. So you could have less packaging, which is a buzzword on sustainability is less packaging, less waste. Um, so the bag uh, suppliers are going to be unhappy and the box suppliers are going to be unhappy, but you're going to be able to uh, desiccate a much greater volume of air. So that's something you can test for because right now there is no official industry testing out there. Another thing you want to know is how well does each desiccant retain moisture? Because the last thing you want to do is put a desiccant bag in a critical part or a moisture sensitive device and you dry it and then all of a sudden you've got it all dry and now that moisture releases back into the atmosphere and right on your part. So you really want to talk and look at 
can I retain the moisture? And then finally, for your inspectors who are checking on these critical devices, moisture sensitive parts, how easy it for is it the inspector operator to determine when to change? That's very important. Again, some have the color, some people like it. Other people have the change in shape, some people like that too. And so those are just some things for reliability engineers to look at so they can make sure nothing goes bad in their plant. There's some of the big, if you do such a test, uh, there's people that are interested in what you, your findings are, okay? And finally, I'll wrap this up and then we'll open up to questions. I just wanna share with you as someone who's been in the business a while that, that water's everywhere, moisture's everywhere. It's, it's in our paint, it's in our cars, it's in our house, it's in our plant, it's in our electrical boxes, it's everywhere. And corrosion isn't too far behind. So with that, for a reliability engineer, pay attention to the water, pay attention to the moisture. And I think if you do that, you'll, you'll make your plants much more reliable. Thank you very much. And I'll stick around and see if anybody has any questions. Right. Um, one of the things, Dan, that struck me when you're talking about the differences in, you know, holding uh, moisture is earlier you talked about that the silica, and I believe the clay also the adhering or adhering, the absorbing is they come to an equilibrium, right? And so that'll if you're at 50 RH or higher, eventually even with the desiccant bag, the interior will come to the, the ambient outside eventually. And it's just the desiccant bags in those cases just delay that process from occurring locally. Is that right? That's correct. So, but you, you just gotta be careful if you're sticking moisture to the surface, you don't want it to drop off and fall back onto your part, okay? So- Right, so it has to be sized to, to continue to adhere enough yes. moisture. And that's why there's the indicators to change it, right? Is the, that's correct. And, at and some it, point, it's it's at the point where it's getting close to saturation, so you gotta change it out. That's correct. And if you have like a big company and you have 500,000 parts and they're all boxed up and they're all critical parts, your labor gets pretty high if you have to change them out all the time. So and, that's an important factor. So, Part of it is is sizing them and all kinds of those things are is part of it, but then they have a it's not shelf life, it's not the right word, but they have a useful life before useful they life. come to equilibrium, and that'll depend on how much humidity it's dealing with, and where and what type of packaging yeah. is, and what type of bag it's put in. So all these are factors. That's why yeah. there's no specs on it today, other than this one that was written in 1967. So um, I'm yeah. grateful that the military and the computer industry is looking into it because the more we change our boards, the more exotic metals that we get on there, the more susceptible they are to, to moisture. Yeah, and I didn't, I looked up that microbial stuff is, you know, it's basically there's microbes that like to eat the films of, you know, the kind of a thin moisture film that has a variety of different sulfides and ions and everything in it. and then a byproduct of those microbes is like sulfuric acid which then is a key component in corrosion and a lot of metals so i got a question from you for you from randy um how do you recommend that electronics be tested against corrosion uh not my 
uh, not my deal. You, you're you're in the business of just interrupting the moisture from being there. So Randy, yes. it really depends on 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 you know what kind of corrosion you're dealing with. Um, the most common one that I know of is there's two of them. One is just the temperature and humidity. Um, in for uh, and I the most amazing one I saw was uh, we had a young engineer want to put a bare um, uh, silver on a board. Uh, they needed to solve some circuit problem, so they put some silver down. And but it was not pure silver, but it was closer to pure silver. It wasn't an alloy that captured the silver ions, the silver metal itself. And silver is called the the mobile metal. Um, so any electrical potential around it would create these beautiful tree structures of growth of this metal migrating across your board following the potential fields. And um, there wasn't moisture. I mean, moisture was involved in that is that it got that process started. And so you could interrupt the moisture, but the silver, you just got to bind it chemically uh, in the metals itself. You got to create a, a, a process. So temperature and humidity, uh, we we typically would run uh, 85, 85 for seven days. If that uh, uh, cor corrosion due to those conditions, if corrosion enhanced by temperature and, and moisture, if that was going to occur, um, would usually occur within like two, three days. It occurred in power of the boards and it would occur pretty darn quickly. The hard part is, is that Sometimes corrosion on boards is caused by somebody putting their thumb on it, right? They put a little thumbprint on it, and your thumb is full of of um, ions, essentially chlorine and sulfides, uh, sulfur ions, essentially, or air pollution that gets contaminates the boards, and then you add a little moisture to the mix and electrical field to it, and now you got corrosion that your testing couldn't find. Another way to do it, in in Dan, you talked about harsh environments is one of the tests for some boards that are going into those environments is called a mixed flowing gases. And it's a cocktail of, of all kinds of things that are known to spark corrosion. And there's a variety of standards out there for doing that. Um, so the, the be testing against corrosion is tricky because you have to have all the elements available for the particular kind of corrosion that you're interested in protecting from. Um, and the hard one is when you have post-contamination. Um, to get that right. I right, got a couple other questions. Evan, uh, I think Evan and Randy, I recognize your names as in a couple others, Ru and Long Chun are, are common visitors to the, the webinar series, so welcome back. Uh, Evan talks about, can you go a little more detail about microbial corrosion? How prevalent and what is the mechanism? By yes, I can. I'm going to get to my favorite slide, if you don't mind. Okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Your corrosion slide. There you okay. go. So, so microbes are microbial. You can't see them, but wait a minute. You can't see them there, but they're actually a living organism with a mouth and a and a pooper. Okay, and they they excrement. I'm trying to use some of the best words I know. They take a poop. Okay, and they release a slime. Okay, and that's how they live. So they have water. They have protein. Okay. They drink and they poop. And when they excrete, they excrete a type of acid. And there's many types of acids will make your head spin off on how many types of acids. So they, in order for them to live, they, again, create this slime. 
and they look for fuel or they look for uh, uh, pollution or they look for anything that they could hang on to so they could build their own little kind of cocoon, if you will, and that's how they survive. They survive in diesel fuel. They just survive in your stomach, right? They survive in food. And uh, so if you're, uh, and, and when they excrete that acid is when that acid attacks the metal. So there's some corns and there's some starches out there that are, are out in the atmosphere and voila, that is from a gas station. And that is the nastiest corrosion known to mankind right there. And so microbial influence corrosion creeps into plants because as uh, Fred said, people put their human footprints and they, they cough and they, they have microbes and they, uh, they land on your parts. Does that help? Yeah, so they're, I mean, they're everywhere, and it's getting the right set of conditions for them to go, and the byproduct that creates the corrosion is their acidic environment that then attacks the metals or sealants or whatever. Um, yeah, there, it's something to be aware of, and that's why we paint things a lot of times. And so I've even seen paint stand that say they're antimicrobial. Co you know, correct. And, and, and another word you can look for, uh, we're getting into chemistry here, pH adjustment, Okay. So if you're having these type of uh, corrosion issues, okay, you may have to adjust the pH of your container. For example, the pH of this acid is about a four and a half, maybe a five. It's nasty and it bombards, okay, and it causes fluid, fuel to stop flowing. It tops pipes to leak. So some of the biggest oil spills in the world have been related to microbial influence corrosion, pipelines cracking, pipelines breaking, pipelines getting holes in them, okay? So you may have to adjust your pH of your atmosphere to something that's safe. So you may have to add some yep. kind of sodium or some kind of baking soda, something to lightly adjust the pH up a little bit. So another question from Alan is, are there any design guides on when a board is subjected to steam environment? Well, one, uh, I would say don't do that <laughs> if you can. Uh, uh, <laughs> I could say I mean, this. That's a lot of moisture. <laughs> yeah, I could say this. The uh, the largest electrical con connector company, I think, in the world, they are required to store these parts all over the world in boxes and warehouses, and they subject all their parts to steam aging testing. And that's about it. So I know that people do steam aging testing to see how they're gonna how they're gonna hold up over time, bombarded by yeah, it, change. I don't know of any guidelines out there. I, I think there are probably papers about protecting metals and polymers and adhesives from uh, very high uh, from steam or from very high humidity and temperatures. Um, but it gets down into the coatings and, and chemical composition of your boards as to how well it will survive those things. Um, you start getting into exotic materials you see under the hood of a car and down well, down the hole of a oil exploration um, rather than the common electronics. But uh, yeah, they they start to get pretty exotic and I don't, I don't know of any design guidelines. So we'll go with that. Um, let's see, Evan, um, let's see, thanks, that answered it. So we'll go back to his question. Good, that's a good thing. Um, Rue, um, can someone design a perfectly sealed enclosure and be done without desiccant or coatings? 
Um, I, I have an answer for that, but yes. go ahead, Dan. <laughs> uh, 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 there's some things out there called hermetically sealed and nitrogen blankets. Um, you're talking big bucks, though. So that's my two cents on hermetically sealed. And, and uh, But if you don't do it right, the microbe is still in there. So you could trap the microbe in there. So there are some people doing hermetically sealed and uh, nitrogen blankets, but it's pretty not cost effective. In, it, in, it depends on the application. Parts. I mean, it's, there, are, there are calls for that. Um, one of the things that um, I learned way back in, in Hewlett-Packard in our design guidelines, and I've seen it in other places since, probably because of the HP documentation, uh, although I, that may be oh, my own bias on it, on the subject, is that if the electronic box itself is about five degrees Celsius warmer than the environment, continuously, five degrees just above the environment, it, it is very difficult for humidity to condense or to form inside of that. It basically creates a dry environment by just that temperature differential of just staying above it. The hard part is like, Dan, you're talking about those cockpits when they have hot, humid air and then they blast away at air conditioning and they have these rapid changes. Or I wear glasses. If I walk out of an air-conditioned uh, building or into one, right, I don't, or, and I get this rapid change, the warm, moist air will just immediately condense and fog up my glasses. Uh, even more prevalent now with the mask on uh, for COVID. But the idea is, is that, um, yeah, you can. It's, as Dan said, very difficult. But over time, even humidity, hermetically sealed ones uh, will um, still end up with some diffusion of moisture into it. Um, so it's moisture and oxygen really like going to equilibrium. It's like a vacuum, right? If you've got a vacuum, it, it abhors, nature abhors a vacuum, so it'll try to fill that space. If there's not enough oxygen inside it's an, a element, oxygen will permeate it, and same with moisture. So it's it can be done for some duration of time, but it's, as Dan said, it's very expensive, right? So another comment or question from Lan Chun, how to prevent moisture trapping under conformal coating? Oh, that's a good one. Well, you gotta keep don't it from do cracking. Don't do it outside in Florida. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah don't yeah. do it outside in Florida. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's tough. So but part of it is, is, go ahead. Well, I was gonna say is, you know, you mentioned part of it is is you've got moisture in the airlines, right, for painting. Um, in factories that are, well, I know in, in factories I worked with um, in, in, in Asia, where it's a very hot, humid environment in, in Malaysia and Singapore and a and, um, handful of these other plants I visited, um, they spent a lot of money to make sure that the facility was air conditioned and desiccated. So inside was a very dry environment. And that was one way they went at it. And the second part is in the conformal coating process itself is the, we didn't advocate baking the products before putting the coating on, but it would basically be have warm products compared to the local air, which tended to drive away moisture. It wasn't perfect, but it, it helped prevent a lot of uh, problems with that. So it's, it's one way to do it. Um, but you, you do have to think through the airflow, the sources of moisture, 
uh, the humidity and fluctuations, temperature fluctuations, and even the, the delivery of that coating, it has to be dry. And so there's a lot of steps that go into to doing it well. Um, yeah, conformal coating is a great technology. You talked about it, Dan, as a barrier, but it it it's difficult to get it right. It's That's been my own experience. Yep. Hey, hey, Fred, can you talk a little bit about uh, when what causes computers to get hot? For example, I've been to the biggest data center in the United States, and uh, they get these uh, rushes of data, and it warms up. The data goes yeah, it's, uh, just it's just current. It it, yeah, it's just it's just current. It, you push an electron along the line. There's a force there, and and it the copper or the steel or, or whatever conductors you have, even inside silicon, is there's resistance. Every electrical line has a resistance, and resistance manifests by creating heat. If you, it's like rub a piece of sandpaper or your hands together, right? You rub them back and forth, there's a little bit of resistance and it generates heat as a byproduct. And so in these very dense populated silicon chips that we're using in servers these days, um, the, one of the biggest issues is how do you get the heat out of it? How do you keep it cool? And made lots and lots of progress over the years, but the more we push through those things, the, as you were talking about earlier, Dan, the, the, the more resistance it sees, the more heat it, it develops. So uh, yeah, that's one way to get it. So Evan says, good explanation, thanks. A vivid explanation, which is a, a vivid response. Thanks, Evan. Okay. Um, Steven uh, asked a question, what is the expected life or reliability for desiccant materials that can't be replaced, serviced inside devices that may be continuously exposed to steam sterilization, such as an autoclave. Well, 30 seconds, I would imagine, if you're inside an autoclave. Yeah, I, I, uh, <laughs> yeah. so obviously it depends on the time and temperature. You know, if you're, a, yeah, time and temperature, but if you're using an autoclave to sterilize something, um, desiccant material for in your packaging or all those kind of things, anything that's going to trap moisture, it's probably not gonna survive the the sterilization process. You probably really don't want to put it in there. Yeah, yeah. It, that's kind of just asking it to fail. Yeah, it, anything, you know, does that make sense, Dan? Uh, yeah, I mean, if it's just bombarded all day long, you you may need a vent or something. I don't know. Uh, yeah, some other method to, to deal yeah, with Yeah, some that. other method. Okay, and Rue is asking also, are you aware of any uh, standards and design guidelines specifically about moisture control of optical components in an enclosure? I'm not. I'm not. Yeah, I mean, it's very much, in my opinion, and from my experience, it's very similar to what you've already been talking about, Dan. It's um, one of the, I mean, putting a barrier on it or film or grease or whale blubber yeah. on an optical encoder is probably not a good idea. You're going to distort the lens that you're actually trying to, to deal with. And you have to be careful if you've got an IR sensor and um, you don't want to put something on it that's going to inhibit its ability to see what it's supposed to see. Uh, and then there's a range of different optical type devices that rely on some wavelength of light to work. So coatings and coverings and films and things like that you have to be careful that they don't uh, destroy the very functionality that you're looking for. The other part of that is um, 
you know, it's kind of what Dan talks about is, is using these desiccant banks. Can you control the humidity within that environment so you don't get condensation? And so a combination of managing the heat and thermal cycling, the amount of available moisture so you don't get to condensation points, um, that you get puddling and, and fogging type things um, from occurring. If you can get it just below the dew point, essentially, and keep it there, um, you're not going to get this condensation. So it's one way to go about doing it. But it takes thinking through your entire design and how it's used. So it's... Um, it's not a simple answer. Uh, and then in some cases you can do uh, uh, ceilings and enclosures combination with silica or with, with the desiccant type systems or by desiccating the air and pushing that through. I mean, there's lots of solutions for it, but it really is the, uh, application dependent and what features you have. Right. I got another question, Ruth, thanks again. Another good question. Is a metal enclosure with lid with gasket seal considered hermetically sealed? Uh, no, <laughs> it's closer to one, but it's not. <laughs> What's the definition of hermetically sealed? You're you're trying to remove. What's your definition of hermetically sealed? Yeah, the, one of the definitions that I, the common one that I, comes immediately to my mind is that it deals with that you're not, it's moisture will not go across that barrier. And, gotcha. and I don't know if it, it usually involves with a, a long period of time. Um, the, but just enclosing it in a can doesn't mean it's hermetically sealed. Um, it's, it's this, it makes it a given object airtight is kind of the quick definition of it. Metal is less permeable to moisture. It it's not that it's it's not permeable. It it can. It just takes a long, long, long time. Glass is is also uh, permeable, but it it's a very slow process. So we tend to use glass and metals to create seals. The hard part with seals, hermetically sealing, is is the welds or seals or gaskets and those kinds of things of maintaining those in a functional way. Uh, if you put a lid with a rubber gasket on it, the rubber itself is going to be permeable, much more so than the metal. And so now you, it's a path. And so hermetically sealed is almost always welded uh, or sealed, you know, formed in such a way that there's metal on metal all the way around. So you, you don't leave a, a a, a path for moisture to, to go through it. Um, and where it's really critical is then they uh, will overpressure systems. They'll do all kinds of exotic things in order to, like you were talking about earlier, Dan, is like nitrogen uh, flooding or bath or overpressuring so to just disallow moisture from encroaching. So they can be pretty exotic and pretty expensive. But yeah, just to, uh, I am thinking of the small electronic enclosures that we have on circuit boards, like for a crystal. Um, they are not hermetically sealed. They're a metal can, and it's for, for protecting the glass, this crystalline structure that's inside of it, but they're not necessarily hermetically sealed unless specifically designed to be so. Let's see. And Peter's looks like you got the, the, Thanks for your presentation, and it looks like it's right at the 
at the, you said it right at 10 o'clock, so hopefully you enjoy the rest of your day. Um, Dan, any last words here as we wrap uh, up? No, just uh, pay attention questions. to the moisture, pay attention to water, and once you understand that, you, you have a better chance of, of solving your problems.